without the work of the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to experience all of the glories that Christ accomplished on the cross because it is He, it is the Spirit, who applies those works of Christ to us. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot partake in the salvation bought on the cross with the blood of Christ. Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Often when we think about the work of redemption and salvation, we think of what Jesus accomplished in our place on the cross. But what work does the Holy Spirit have in our salvation? This week at Redeemer Church, we are jumping back into our sermon series on the Holy Spirit. In this message, Pastor Michael Badger will be helping us to better know and understand the Holy Spirit by looking specifically at what Scripture says is His work in our salvation. As you have already heard, it is the Holy Spirit that applies the works of Christ to us. So here's Pastor Michael with part two of our series on the least understood person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll be reading uh, from the word this morning of chapter or John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And when I get finished reading, I ask that you would respond. I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you can hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I hope you are doing well this this beautiful uh, is it still spring? When does summer actually begin? I don't understand when that happens, but I think it's still spring, right? Yeah, of course it's still spring. Yeah. Well, I hope you're enjoying this beautiful spring morning. Um, we are, as you guys can see, we are diving back into our series on the Holy Spirit. Um, now, last week, or not last week, but a couple weeks ago, rather, the first part of the uh, this series, we, we kind of just did some foundation laying. Uh, we saw that the Holy Spirit is not simply uh, this impersonal force in the universe, but rather He Himself is holy and fully God. And not only is He holy and fully God, but He is also a person. He is, he is personal. He has personhood, just as does the Father and the Son. Now, today, we're going to be kind of building on that foundation by beginning to look at the work of the Holy Spirit 
specifically the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, the Holy Spirit does a lot of things uh, in, in the life of a Christian, but we're going to kind of narrow our focus this morning to the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And then next time, we're going to be looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. But the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, it can actually be an often misunderstood subject. And the reason why it can be a mis- uh, misunderstood subject is not because the Bible doesn't, doesn't talk about it very much. It's actually the opposite. The Bible talks a lot about the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation. But I think it's really because our misunderstandings kind of come from our own predilections, our own, our own kind of uh, patterns of thinking. Because when we think of salvation, our minds usually immediately go to Jesus, right? And, and hey, fair enough. We can't have salvation without Jesus. And so we want our minds to go immediately to Jesus. But what I want us to see today is that without the work of the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to experience all of the glories that Christ accomplished on the cross because it is He, it is the Spirit, who applies those works of Christ to us. Without the Holy Spirit, we could not partake in the salvation bought on the cross with the blood of Christ. Now, on the outset, it doesn't sound like it, but we're actually entering into some pretty controversial and difficult territory. There's some, there's some debates that happen through uh, just kind of surrounding this subject, but through it all, I want us to remember what is to be our guide this morning. Right? Because it's not to be our, our, our feelings. It's not to be our, our experiences or, or even our lack of experiences, maybe. But rather, it is to be the revealed Word of God. That must be our ultimate rule and measure of faith. Right? And so along those lines, I, I try to, to make available to you all of the, all the different scripture verses that I'm kind of pulling together to, to, to bring in this, uh, to bring together this, this sermon. So if you go to the next slide, these are all of the, uh, passage references that I'm going to be, uh, going to be mentioning right there. And what I, I put those on there because I want you to know that, that I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to think that I'm ever trying to trying to take Scripture out of its context and bend it to fit my theology. And so I want you to, to feel free to write those passages down and look at them within their fuller context. But I also want you to know that this morning we're going to be getting into some deep theological waters. And so I want us to approach with reverence and to approach with, with humility and sensitivity, knowing that as with all things of the Spirit, there's going to be a measure of mystery here. There are going to be things that we, that we don't fully grasp, that we can't fully wrap our minds around, because there are secret things that we just fully aren't meant to know this side of glory. Now, we have a lot to cover this morning. My very first sermon that I ever preached uh, many years ago was actually, I was so nervous and so afraid. I was, I was kind of hyperventilating 
as I was speaking, and it was only 17 minutes long, we're not going to have that problem this morning. So we're going to be lucky if we fit it in within an hour and a half, all right? So we're going to go ahead and jump straight in there, but uh, first, please pray with me this morning. Lord, we love you. And we know when it comes to certain topics found within Scripture, there can be uh, disagreements, Lord. But even if that is the case this morning, I pray, God, that that we leave our our pride, Lord, our, our ego, Lord, anything that would detract us from the truth of your word at the door. And that we submit to what your word has to say. And even if there are things in which we disagree, Lord, let us disagree on the things that are not fundamental. God, and let us seek unity this morning. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that we seek your truth this morning. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit guides us, leads us, illuminates our minds to the truth of your word, and gives us grace. Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so as I said... Uh, without the Holy Spirit, we could not partake in the salvation of the cross of Christ. In order to have the redemption that Jesus accomplished on our behalf applied to us, a miraculous event must take place within you. You must be born again. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, we, we have plenty of Bibles here uh, for you. Uh, we would love to give you one. But if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, as Kara read uh, so well just a moment ago, there was a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Um, old Nick, as I like to call him, uh, was a very learned and respected man. And he was, he was actually really excellent at following the law of God. And and Nicodemus, he wasn't really typically what we think of when we think of a Pharisee. He seemed to be a legitimately good man, right? And when he heard the things that Jesus taught and he he saw the signs and wonders that he performed, rather than, than hating him, this Pharisee was genuinely curious about him. He wanted to know more. He saw that there was, there was something special about this Jesus of Nazareth, but he couldn't quite kind of come to grips with, with what it was. He couldn't quite see it. And so in the cover of darkness, so that none of his other Pharisee brothers would, would see, Nicodemus meets with Jesus. Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. That's a pretty big admittal right there, because the other Pharisees would not have said that ever. But Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And beginning in verse 3, Jesus has a reply that is somewhat unusual. Instead of saying, well, you know, old Nick, I, I, I am God, that's why. He says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is actually presenting Nicodemus with a problem. And not only a problem, but he's actually presenting Nicodemus with the solution to that problem. 
And the problem is that in his natural state, without being born again, Nicodemus and all humankind cannot see the kingdom of God. Not only that, but verse 5 of our passage says that we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We can't see the kingdom of God. We can't enter into the kingdom of God. Now the question is, why is that? Why can't someone who is not born again see or enter into God's kingdom? The simple answer there is sin. It's sin. By our very nature, we are sinful creatures. And friends, despite what the world might tell you, we are not sinful because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinful. You may have heard that before. And Scripture makes this abundantly clear. We've talked about it here at Redeemer many times. Romans 3, 10 through 11. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. Did you, did you catch that last one? Even No one is even a seeker of God. And that sometimes kind of rubs us the wrong way because we'll say that. We'll say that, the, that this, this uh, sinner that we know, he seems to be searching for God. Scripture says that there's no one that searches for God. They may be searching for some sort of higher power, but what they're searching for is a God made in their own image. No one is a seeker for the God of the Bible. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin, or in sin rather, did my mother conceive me. And one of the most forceful statements of our sinful condition is Ephesians 2.1-3. I think that's on the slide. I think the previous slide, um, has that, uh, that passage on there for you to check out. But it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so, friends, that is the problem. We were children of wrath. We were walking in lockstep with Satan. We were following in the passions of our flesh. And ultimately, we were spiritually dead. Thanatos, dead. We had no spiritual heartbeat whatsoever. We were dead. Our sinfulness and spiritual deadness bars us and barred us from seeing and entering God or entering God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying that the solution to that problem is that something radical must happen to you. You must be radically transformed, Jesus says. You must be born again. And friends, there is no Christian who has ever lived, who was not born again. If you are a true believer, Scripture says that you are born again. And that's why saying you're a born-again Christian is actually somewhat of a, of a redundancy. You're, you're basically saying uh, you're a Christian Christian, which it's fine. You know, if, you if you want to say that, it's totally, totally fine. It's really emphasizing. You know, what are you? I'm a Christian Christian. So I have no problem with it, theologically. But that is why this doctrine, this, this teaching, is so important. Because it is something that, that you experienced. 
This, this happened to you. If you're a believer in this room, you had this happen to you. You experienced this. And it was vital to your salvation and to your eternity. And friends, it is uniquely, and listen, listen close to this part, it is uniquely an act of the Holy Spirit. As verse 5 clearly states, it is uniquely an act of the Holy Spirit. But we're going to get back to that shortly. But that obviously brings up uh, to us the question of what happens in this new birth. What happens in the new birth that a sinner must experience that grants them entry into the kingdom of God and gives them the eyes to see the kingdom of God? What happens? Well, there are at least five things. At least five things that happen to us in the new birth. And I want us to take a a look at this morning. The first is we are given new life. The second, we are made into new creations. The third, we are granted the ability to perceive spiritual things. Fourth, we are given the gift of faith. And finally, we are united with Christ. So I want us to take some time and look at each of them in turn. First, you were given new life. You were given new life. Before we were born again, we were like the dead, dry bones of Ezekiel 37. Right, We were lifeless. We were unable to move a single step toward God. And this was the state of Nicodemus' heart as he was sitting there face to face with Jesus. And you may say, well, well, wasn't he a, a great religious man? This Nicodemus, didn't he say that he, he saw the wonders of Jesus and he heard his teachings? Didn't he do well in obeying the law of God? Well, friends, yes. Yes, he did. But while he was religious and in the eyes of the world a good man, he was still spiritually lifeless. He witnessed and recognized that there was something different about Jesus. He obeyed the law to the best of his ability. He led a, a, a moral life to as much as he could, but he was still spiritually unborn. And this is important because there are many in our churches and in our culture who would put up their religious bona fides as evidence of spiritual life. How many people in St. Albans would say yes if you asked them if they, if, they, if they knew there was something special about Jesus? How many people in St. Albans would say yes if you asked them if they were spiritual? Or if they were a good person? And there are many who would assent to saying again that there is, there is something about Jesus, they just can't quite grasp it, but they know He's an important guy. And you can have all those things. You can have all of them, but unless you have been born again, friends, you have no spiritual life within you. But the instant you are born again, friends, new life comes flooding into your spirit. Paul in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, after giving that explanation of our dreadful, sinful state before Christ, says this. But God. And friends, how, how wonderful is that phrase? It's one of my favorite phrases in the entire, in the entirety of Scripture. We were sinful enemies of God who were spiritually dead, but God. Amazing is that. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How amazing is that? That being made alive is another picture of our new birth. That speaks to what is happening in our new birth, where once we were dead to God, dead to the mercies of Christ, dead to the possibility of entering His kingdom, we are now made alive together with Christ. A slight spoiler alert, that is also a sneak peek of being united with Christ in the new birth as well. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. And so that's the first thing that happens at new birth. The Holy Spirit breathes life into you. Breathes spiritual life into you. The second thing that happens to you in the new birth is actually very closely related to the first. When you were born again, you were made into a brand new creation. Look again at John 3, verses 4 through 6. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again, Nick responds by saying, how can man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And praise God, that's not what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now here Jesus is getting a little bit more specific what he means by being born again. He says that you must be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, now some would, would have you believe that Jesus is talking about two different births right here. One being the birth of water and the second being the birth of the Spirit. Some view the birth of the water being the first natural birth from an earthly mother, while others believe it refers to baptism. But within the context of this passage, within, the, within the, the time frame that Jesus is actually speaking this, both of these explanations are actually incorrect. They don't, they don't make sense within the context of the entire passage. But in reality, Jesus here is talking about one single birth. He's talking about one single birth. The birth of water and the birth of the Spirit is the same birth. A silly example of this, but... Uh, it's kind of like you know saying that this morning I took a shower of water and shampoo. Am I talking about two different showers, or am I talking about one shower? One shower, right? It's a terrible example. Don't use that. Now, the language that Jesus is using here, again, is, is very specific. He's using very specific language here, and he's actually referencing a prophecy foretold in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is kind of saying what this prophecy foretells is what what happens in your new birth. And so listen to what Ezekiel 36, uh, specifically verse 25, says. Ezekiel 36, 25. says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So this is what Jesus is referring to by being born of water. In the new birth, the Holy Spirit washes us clean. 
The blood of Christ, which is more pure than any water, is taken by the Holy Spirit and applied to our hearts and all of our our filth and, and sinfulness, all of our idolatry, is absolutely washed away. It is completely removed from us. This happens in the moment of our new birth. And this is what Titus chapter 3, verse 5 is speaking to when it says, And He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration. Now, just quick pause. Regeneration is another term for new birth. When you hear the term regeneration or when you see the term regeneration, I'll use it in the sermon a little bit more. But when you see that, think new birth. Regeneration means new birth. To be regenerate means to be born again. And so we are saved by the washing, the cleansing of our sins that happens in our regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are washed in regeneration. Now, we are made into new creations, not only by being forgiven of our sins and washed clean, But the prophecy Jesus is connecting new birth to here in Ezekiel 36 also says in verses 26 through 27 that part of being born of water means that old, stony, dirty heart of yours gets completely replaced. It gets completely replaced. You get cleansed and you are given a new heart. Look at Ezekiel 36 verses 26 through 27. And I will give you, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, we are made into new creation by the new birth, by being cleansed of our sins and by being given brand new hearts. We're new creation. Our old hearts of stone that were hopelessly dead were cut out. And in their place, we were given new living hearts. What is so wonderful about these new hearts is that they now beat for Jesus. They are now able to grasp the things of God that were that they were previously blinded to, that the old stony heart was blinded to and could never see. They are able to truly see and love Jesus for who He is. That is the third thing that happened to you in your new birth. You were given spiritual sensitivities. You were given spiritual sensitivities. You see, without the new birth, Nick was still blinded to the kingdom of God, right? That's what it says in verse 3. He could not see the kingdom of God. And I believe this is actually meant in two different ways. One being that without being born again, he would not see the fulfillment of the kingdom of God on earth upon the second coming of Christ. To see it established in all of its glories as heaven and earth are made new. But secondly, the kingdom of God is being extended here and now, right? 
Right? We, we, we see it taking place now. The kingdom of God is extending now, and it was extending even back then as Jesus was on earth. He came to declare that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of God was at hand. So, so we have this ever-expanding kingdom that will be fulfilled upon the second coming of Christ when he brings all of that to fulfillment. And so without the second birth, Nicodemus and all others would not be able to see, to behold, to experience and comprehend the beauty of God's kingdom here and now. And so all of the riches and blessings of being a citizen of heaven right now would be invisible and intangible and unreachable by him and by all those who have not been born again. His sinful heart would be blinded to the experiential knowledge of the gospel. He could tell that there was something special about Jesus, but he couldn't see him as Lord and Savior. That's precisely what Paul tells us using slightly different words in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person cannot accept the things of God as they are considered foolishness and cannot be understood. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Now Paul isn't saying that the truth of the gospel and the kingdom of God cannot be intellectually grasped by an unbeliever. But rather, what does he say? They're considered foolish. They are blinded to not simply the empirical truth of the gospel, but the spiritual reality of the gospel in the kingdom of God. Those things can only be discerned by the Spirit. And friends, if you're unborn, how can a dead spirit, a dead heart, discern anything at all? It can't. So what happens in the wondrous new birth, what happens at regeneration, is that our new hearts are made miraculously open to the things of God. This means that we are given the wonderful ability to finally taste and see that the Lord is good. We can, we can do that before. We can, we can actually experience the goodness of God in its, in its fullness. But we can taste and see that the Lord is good now. In the new birth, our hearts are open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And we can see the glories of His kingdom and what it means to be a citizen. I believe this is actually demonstrated to us beautifully in the life of Lydia in Acts 16, 14, which says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, I am of the belief that this is an observation of her new birth. Her heart was made open. She could now see the kingdom of God because she was now part of that kingdom. But I want you to notice, kind of switching gears just a little bit, I want you to notice who did the opening of Lydia's heart here. Is it Lydia who opened her own heart? Who does the opening? The Lord. The Lord, the Holy Spirit. This actually brings us back around to John 3. 
We saw what it mean or what it meant when Jesus said that you must be born of water. Right? He said you must be born of water. But what about the Spirit? What about the Spirit? Now, we've already kind of hit on this before without explicitly stating it, but let's get a little bit more specific. What Jesus means is that the only one able to enact our new birth, the only one who can perform the wonderful things that happens to us in our regeneration, the cleansing, the giving of the new hearts, the opening our new hearts to the truth of the kingdom of God in the gospel is the Holy Spirit. The only way in which you can be born again is through the sovereign acting of the Spirit. And that is because, as Jesus says in verse uh, 6 of our passage in John 3, he explains why this is. He says, that which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. Meaning mankind, human beings, cannot produce any sort, any sort of birth other than that which is flesh. Physical. Material. But what is born of the Spirit? The Holy Spirit is what? Spirit. Is Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give birth to that which is spiritual. This means that the Holy Spirit is the sole actor in our new birth. And that is the truth that is found in Titus 3, 5 as well. Remember? Remember when we, when we said that just a few moments ago? He said He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of who? Man? Man, man and spirit, maybe? No. Only the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But first, there's an important question. This is where it gets, gets a little controversial. But there's an important question that we must ask that you may already be, be wondering. And it's actually a question that will lead us to our fourth point. But the question is, what is the relationship between new birth and faith? What's the relationship between new birth and faith? More specifically, which comes first? Which comes first? New birth or faith? Does placing your faith in Jesus spark regeneration or the new birth? Or does regeneration enable faith? Which is it? I think you know. <laughs> but there are several places that answer this question. But I want us to take a look specifically at 1 John 5.1. Right? 1 John 5.1. I'll give you a second to flip there, because it's really important to be able to actually see the Scripture, and we don't have that one written out. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father has been born of God. I'm going to have to get somewhat detailed here. But understanding the Greek grammar in this verse is very important. Listen again and pay close attention to the verbs. The verbs. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been 
born of God. Now try to stick with me here. In the Greek, the combination of the present tense, meaning everyone who believes, everyone in this room and throughout history who believes in Jesus, the the combination of that present tense and then the perfect tense has been born is extremely important. It means everyone who believes, everyone who has ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ were first born again. First born again. As John Stott said, it shows clearly that our believing in Jesus is a consequence, is a result of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing in Jesus is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of the new birth by which we became God's children. Does that that make sense? I I know this is some some kind of deep and and somewhat complicated stuff. So Let me just try to put it another way. What What this verse is saying is that the new birth is the root. And saving faith is the fruit. New birth is the root, and our faith is the fruit. The only way that we can have our eyes open to the truth of the gospel, the only way that our hearts can become sensitive to the dreadfulness of our sin before a holy God, and the only way that faith in Jesus for salvation can be had is through being born again of the Spirit of God. And this actually flows perfectly with Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2.8, where we are told that even our faith is what? It's a gift. It's a gift from God. It does not self-originate. That's what we often think, right? We think our faith kind of generates itself up in our own heart. But Scripture says the opposite. Scripture says that even the faith that we place in Jesus Christ comes from above. It comes as a gift from the Holy Spirit. This is also what Paul means by saying in 1 Corinthians 12.3 that no one, no one, this is 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord, meaning a profession of true saving faith, except in the Holy Spirit. Except if the Holy Spirit is in them and has already wrought new birth. If you have not experienced new birth and been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then you cannot have faith in Jesus. In the order of salvation, or the the ordo salutis, if you like fancy terms, new birth precedes faith. New birth brings with it the ability to believe in Jesus Christ with a saving faith. That is the fourth thing we are given in the new birth. We are given faith, the gift of faith. Now, while there is a logical order or a theological order, you could say here, you need to know that from our point of view, all of this happens in an instant. All this happens in an instant. New birth, faith, salvation, justification, adoption, all of it happens within a millisecond, within the blink of an eye. There's no one walking around who has been born again, but comes to faith a few months later. That's, that's not what happens. That's not what Scripture says happens. That's not the picture that we, that we glean from God's holy word. Rather, it all happens in the same 
moment. Now, that's not to say you, you, you hear the gospel, and at that moment that you hear the gospel, you, 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 you become a believer, right? You can hear the gospel, and months later, the Lord act new birth. Enact new birth, rather. It's sort of like, as Stephen Lawson puts it, like, like fire and light. To us, it all happens at the same time, right? At the same instance. When you, when you strike a match, you have fire and you have light at the same time. But which comes first? The fire or the light? The flame or the light that it produces? <laughs> Ask Google, there we go. But without the flame, there is no light. So it is with new birth and faith. New birth must precede faith. But from our point of view, it all happens in one eternity-changing moment. But just as you cannot have fire without light, as I kind of alluded to earlier, you cannot have new birth without the faith that it produces. You can't. We cannot separate them from each other. Listen to how John binds them together in 1 John 5, 4. He binds them together here. It says, everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is our victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let me read that passage for you again. 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. So, so new birth is the key to victory, the key to salvation. But again, he continues, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so what is the key to overcoming the world? New birth. What is the, what is the key to overcoming the world? Faith. New birth and faith. They go hand in hand. They are inseparable. As John Piper puts it, faith is the key to victory because that is the way that we experience being born of God. The moment you are born again, you are given the faith that you are called to place in Christ Jesus. Now, going backwards just a little bit, I want to reiterate that this is completely, totally, 100% a work of the Holy Spirit. We humans have no part, no activity in our regeneration, in our new birth. It isn't 50% God and 50% man. You won't, you won't see that in Scripture. When it's, talked, when it's speaking of the new birth, it is always a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit. You will not see man mentioned it, doing anything in terms of new birth. We do not meet him halfway with this. He is the sole acting agent here, and for some, that is an uncomfortable truth. And I understand that. But for others, it is a blessed assurance. But for all, it is a mystery. Because how all of that plays out, how the sovereignty of God and the will of man completely plays out in new birth and faith and how that all works together, will always be a mystery. We can only dig so deep before we have to throw our hands up and let it be in the realm of God. Now, it's an uncomfortable truth for some because this means that we have absolutely no, no role whatsoever in our regeneration. As I just said, it is totally an act of grace by the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. 
from the moment the gospel is presented to us to the moment we place uh, our God-given faith in Christ, it is the Holy Spirit at work from beginning to end. If you don't believe me, just think of this word picture that, that Jesus used, new birth. Who in this room chose to be born the first time? Raise your hand. Or what part did you play in your own natural birth? What did you do to be born the first time? The answer, I believe, is rather obvious. If not, talk to Ethan. This is one of the reasons Jesus chose this particular word picture. Birth is not something that is in the control of the one being born. And so it is with new birth. And being made alive is not up to the one who is dead. What part did Lazarus play in his rising? None. And so it is with our regeneration. Our passage again in John 3, verse 6. Remember, it says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There is no flesh mixed in there. It is the Spirit and the Spirit alone who begets our new birth. John states this again, actually, for the first time in in chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. He says, All who believed in Him were not born of blood. And this is the difficult part. This This next few words is the difficult part, especially for us modern Western American thinkers. All who believed in Him were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Because, if it, friends, if it, were, if it were up to those things, if it were up to the will of flesh, if it were up to our own wills, which were enslaved to sin, we would never have been chosen to be born again. Never. We were enemies of God. We were dead in our trespasses. Dead in our sins. We never, on our own accord, would have chosen God. That's what John is saying here. Not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. So not of blood, not of the will of flesh, or the will of man, but of whose will? God's, the Holy Spirit's. That is a humbling passage. That's a humbling truth. And that is a mysterious truth. This is what is meant by Jesus' words to Nicodemus in verse 8 of our passage. This is one that that people kind of get confused over about what it actually means. The verse 8 of John 3 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so what Jesus is saying is, just as the wind has the freedom to blow where it wishes, the Spirit has complete and utter freedom and control in new birth. Man is passive, so that even when we look at our new birth, when we look at our faith, even when we look at our repentance, our repentance, Acts 11.18 and 2 Timothy 2.25 says that even our repentance of our sin is a gift from God. Did you know that was in Scripture? 
All we can do when we look at all those things is marvel at the work of God and give Him all glory, all credit, all praise to Him who raised us from our spiritual graves as assuredly as He rose Lazarus from His earthly grave. And friends, that is why for me, and I pray for you too, even if you're wrestling this with wrestling with this for the first time this morning. This truth is a blessed assurance for me. This means that there is nothing that I did because there was nothing I could do to earn my salvation because that would be impossible. I can't even say that, hey, the faith that I placed in Jesus Christ, that was my faith. I was different than that guy down the road who, who chose to not place faith in Jesus Christ. I, I had some super faith. I can't even do that. This means there's nothing I did to earn my salvation because that would be impossible. Nothing I did. And yet, despite my inability, despite my filth, despite my rebellion, despite my status as a spiritual corpse, the God of heaven so loved me that He gave His Son to die for my sin and He sent His Spirit to come and indwell in me, bringing about my new birth. And friends, he, he performed spiritual surgery on me. He cut away my heart of stone. And he placed within me a heart of flesh that could feel love for and experience love from the King of Kings. I was dead. But I was raised from the grave. I was raised in newness of life. I was born again. And friends, I was united with my Savior. He did it all. All glory to the God who saves. And friends, actually, that, that is the practical application to this. Sometimes when we, when we kind of preach these more, more heady sermons, people in the congregation, and, and me too at times, can think of, okay, well, how am I going to apply this sermon to my everyday life so when my, my mean coworker says something to me, I will think of, okay, my new birth. Right? We think of how can we apply this to my everyday life. Well, friends, the application here is this. It is to give God all praise and glory for your salvation. That's the practical application. Our salvation from A to Z was by grace and by grace alone. By grace, unmerited favor, we have been saved. So to sum up what happens to us at the new birth, it is nothing less than the Holy Spirit breathing life into us and giving us faith. Now here's the last thing that happens in our regeneration, in our new birth. The Holy Spirit unites us in full union with Christ Jesus. That is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And not only that, that is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That is the body of Christ. Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul is saying here that this baptism of the spirit is an experience that happened to all believers. The baptism of the spirit is actually another picture of our new birth. That's what the baptism of the spirit is. The baptism of the Spirit is another picture of our new birth, of our regeneration, and in it, we are united with the body of Christ. Look again at that passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We were all united with Christ. 
We're brought together with Him in this wonderful, beautiful union with Him as our head and us as His body. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. And Calvin said it well. The Holy Spirit is the bond that unites us to Christ. It is at our regeneration where all of the accomplishments of Jesus on the cross are applied to us by the Holy Spirit as He unites us with our Savior. I'm exhausted. Now as we bring all this to a close, I know that was a lot. Uh, Scripture tells us that new birth does not happen without the accompaniment of the gospel message. Let me say that one more time. Scripture tells us that the new birth does not happen without the accompaniment of the gospel message. When you were born again, what, what preceded it? What preceded you being born again? Hearing the good news. Hearing the good news. Now, that's not to say that, again, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that the moment you heard the gospel, you were born again. We we know that's not how it always works. It can work that way, but it's not always how it works. It might have been weeks, months, or, or even years after you heard the gospel. It may have been after you heard the gospel for, for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time. But no matter what, the vehicle through which the Holy Spirit descends upon a soul to do the work of regeneration is through the preaching of the good news of Jesus. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. That means the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that imperishable seed. You've been born of the imperishable Holy Spirit through, through the living and abiding Word of God. And so born of the Spirit, born through the Word. The way the Holy Spirit moves is through the preaching of the Word, through the preaching of the Gospel. One theologian put it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit does not move willy-nilly. That's a highly theological term there if you want to write that down. The Holy Spirit does not move willy-nilly, randomly through the Word, touching random people with the new birth who have never heard the Gospel without any reference to the Word of God at all. No, he doesn't do that. He moves in tandem with the preaching of the gospel. And the reason he does this, and listen close to this, is that his primary mission, according to John 16, 14, is to glorify the Son. And if he just made people alive who have never heard heard of the Son of God, they wouldn't be able to glorify the Son with their new life. Did you catch that? New life is bound to the Word of God because new life is meant to glorify God the Son and we hear about the Son of God in the Gospel. So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you are born again, even if you disagreed with some of the things I said in this sermon, your role in all of this, first and foremost now, is to glorify God. That's your first first priority is to glorify God. And secondly, it is to preach the gospel boldly and confidently because we know that the gospel, in the words of the Apostle Paul, is the power unto salvation for all who believes. And and why is it the power unto salvation for all who believes? Because it is in the gospel that the Holy Spirit moves and works and enters into the soul of a sinner bringing the life of Christ. 
That is Romans 8, 9 through 11. So how freeing is that? How freeing is that for you? It's freeing for me. If I told you how many times I've I've sweated about whether or not I've messed up when I'm talking when I'm talking to somebody about the gospel. I, I can't tell you how many times I've freaked out about that. But you just have to be faithful in sharing the gospel and sit back and let the Holy Spirit do his work, trusting in him to bring the harvest. He brings the harvest. And trust the Spirit of God to do his work, glorifying the Son. Let's pray. Lord, God, we want to glorify you this morning. And all we do and all we say, Lord, help us seek to glorify you. Lord, help us recognize that we are utterly dependent on you. We are dependent on your spirit for everything. God, we're, we're dependent on, on you for even the breath in our lungs right now. So how much more so are we dependent on you for our salvation? And so, Lord, we, we thank you, God, that in your good grace and in your mercy, you deemed it to be good to save us. Lord, you didn't, you didn't have to. We were rebels. We were enemies. We were slanders, idolaters. For we walked with Satan. And yet, because you loved us, you sent your son to die. So Lord, we thank you. Lord, help us, help us not forget the wonderful role that your spirit played in our salvation and continues to play in our walk with Christ our Lord. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.